0: hi this is andrew and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers hello everyone it's monday 12th, september the 26th 2022 unusually i'm broadcasting from new york today not from California, which explains the strange background, the hotel room background on my video feed. Uh, My guest today, I hope um, his ears were burning over the last few weeks because we've been talking about him quite a lot. Uh, Matthew Stewart was on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about the 9.9% aristocracy that he believes in his new book. The uh, the 9.9% is Ruining America. As it happens, my guest today, Richard Reeves, has a very similar book out called Dream Hoarders, which in many ways, I think, covers the same terrain. And we touched on Reeves in the conversation with Matthew Stewart. Then last week, I had a conversation with a real-life Ted Lasso, a man called John Bacon, who turned the worst ice hockey team, uh, uh, high school team in the United States, into one of the best. He's put that into a book, *The Greatest Comeback*, and we talked about Richard Reeves's new book on um, the challenges that boys and men are having in contemporary America. That book is called *Boys and Men: Why the Modern Male Is uh, Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It*. Uh, it was interesting. Um, uh john bacon suggested that boys are having a lot more of a struggle when it even comes to sports as girls so uh and i think he was familiar with uh, richard's new book the book is just out and richard is talking to us from tennessee richard congratulations mm-hmm. on the book you have three sons um i think have all now just left home how much of this book was inspired or triggered by your own experience as a father
1: well, I think that all scholarship is a bit autobiographical, uh, whether we like it or not. It's just a question of whether we whether we admit to it. Uh, and so I do think that the the experience of raising three boys all now in their 20s on on both sides of the Atlantic in both the UK and the US uh, did influence how I thought about the position of boys and men in the world today. But the big caveat there is, of course, they're being raised in very privileged circumstances and so they're not actually the boys and men who i'm most concerned about in the book i'm i'm most concerned about them in my life of course they're, they're my sons but but it more broadly as i've been working on issues of inequality and you're very kind to mention my previous book dream hoarders but so i've worked on issues of inequality both by class and by race i kept tripping over gender gaps and not always in the direction you'd expect and so particularly as we look. For those boys and men who are not at the top, they're not dream orders, they're not in the upper middle class, a lot of them are really struggling in education, in work and in family life. And, and so that led me to all the research and thinking that's gone into the book. And so I'd say that, that there's no question that the dinner table conversations about what it's like to be a boy in the current education system were definitely part of it. But it was the work I was doing at Brookings on inequality that really led me uh, to, to focus book length on this subject.
0: Is a change, Richard, I mean, clearly, whatever side of the debate one's on, we're living at a time of profound change when it comes to gender and gendered roles. Is the change cultural, economic, technological, political, or all of the above?
1: Yes, I think it is all of the above. And part of the challenge is, is to strip out cause and effect to the extent that you can. It's like, what's is there a single first course that leads to everything else? And the answer, of of course, is no. What's happening is that they're all overlapping. And so if you see boys and men struggling in education, for example, that's going to make it harder for them to do well in the workplace. And that's one of the reasons why we see 9 million prime age men out of the labor force. And it's one of the reasons why male wages have actually gone down in the US. So that most men are worse off today in terms of earnings than most men were in 79 that in turn has implications for family formation Um, because of such dramatic shifts in the economic relationship between men and women means that what it means to be a father is a very different thing now than it was certainly for my father you're raising me and so in a very short period of time that's changed and then of course men who feel as if they're to some extent have been benched by some of the economic and social changes we've seen it's not no surprise then perhaps if they are more vulnerable to some of the temptations of drug addiction uh, uh, technology and so on. And these deaths of despair that are discussed a lot from... So- Angus
0: Deaton. I yeah, know sure Deaton you, you know him. he's been on the show as well.
1: Yeah, Angus has worked with Anne Case. And actually, it was you know, they really popularized it in a Brookings paper originally. But the risk of that is three times higher among men than it is among women. And How does it
0: break down uh, in, in racial terms, Richard, in, b- between blacks and whites and in america the the third dominant group hispanic boys men
1: are you talk, are you asking specifically about the deaths of despair or more generally
0: well, broader i mean are you seeing the mm-hmm. same crisis of masculinity and challenges or what it means to be a boy or a man in the 2020s in america amongst both black and white men and hispanic men
1: yes it's an interesting and a good good question i i think that these a lot of these trends do cut across race in important ways, but specifically, I would say, for black boys and men. So we were just talking about the deaths of despair. It's like, actually, that's higher among white working class men. And suicide rates are highest among low-income, middle-aged white men. Um, so that particular issue does seem to be a bit more focused in the white working class. But as a general point, black boys and men... Uh, are the ones who are at the bottom of most of the distributions we might care about in terms of education, incarceration, employment, uh, earnings, and so on. And that the gender gaps between black girls and black boys and black women and black men are much wider than for other groups, much wider than for Hispanic or white, for example. And so there are these differences. There are gender gaps for all races, uh, which disfavor boys and men in education in particular, but they're much bigger for black boys and men. So, so for example uh, uh, are, are white
0: white boys becoming more like black boys i mean are they experiencing the same fate uh, in, in sociocultural, socio-cultural economic terms
1: well i mean that's a, that's a, a big a big question i do think that some of the gender gaps that we've seen that have been more historically associated with black men are becoming more common among white men. So a couple of examples are that we've just passed an interesting tipping point in the US where most wives are better educated than their husbands. So in most marriages now, the wife is slightly better educated. That's taken a long time, of course, because it's the educational overtaking has happened in recent decades. But that's been true in black marriages for for as long as we've been counting. And it's also true that family formation has been very different uh in the black community than in the white community for a long time too and but we've seen a significant increase so many more kids being born outside marriage for example um but we've seen a big increase in that in white families now too and so what it means to be a father in a situation where the family is not built around a traditional marriage is actually something where black men in some ways are they're sort of leading the way. And some people will see that obviously in a negative sense, but there's also a positive aspect to this, which is that black fathers who are not living with their children's mothers are more engaged with their kids than white fathers are. And so this sort of the the new fluidity of family form is something that's not new for black men. And so they've been coping with a lot of these difficulties for, for much longer than white men. But I think it's certainly true to say that some of those challenges are now affecting white men much more than they were before.
0: It's ironic. And I'm sure lots of people will be ironically amused when white men show up at black men's um, <laughs> groups and say, we, we need to understand what you're going through. Is this the perfect storm, Richard? I mean, I know that's an overused term and a cliche, but talking about all these different forces, as you say, there's no single cause, there's no first mover here, but they're all connected.
1: Yeah, they are all connected, and that's again. That's I think that's why it's so difficult in terms of social science is to figure out exactly what's going on here. Because, you know, for example, the You're imp- too rela- smart to be a social scientist, though, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I don't know which. It depends which day. Ask me on. Ask me one day, and I'm a philosopher. Ask me another day, I'm a social scientist. Ask me another day, I'm a policy wonk. So make of that kaleidoscopic resume what you will. But yeah, it's difficult because usually, of course, causality runs both ways. So, for example, between uh, marriage and employment right is it the men who are struggling in employment are less likely to get married or is it the marriage acts as incentive so that men are more likely to be employed but i do think that what's happened is we've seen a coincidence of trends so the struggles that men are having in the labor market are by and large not related i should say they're not related to the rise of women in the labor market men have been hurt by some specific trends, including free trade and automation and the resulting decline in traditionally male jobs. So there have been these economic shocks. The men have just, as it happens, been the ones who have been disproportionately hit by it. That's coincided with significantly more economic independence uh, for women. And it's coincided with changes in our culture as well. And so... Uh, And it's coincided with these educational difficulties that we're seeing, including increased feminization of the teaching profession. And so these things, even if they're not not causally related, the fact that they're coincident, I think does create something like, if not a perfect storm, then a clustering of problems that are happening simultaneously for boys and men. And they do end up amplifying each other, even if they're not exactly causing each other.
0: Your book got a sympathetic... Uh, column in The mm-hmm. in the Guardian, which might have turned on the book, too, by Gabby Hinscliffe, with a cover of some uh, Trump supporters suggesting uh, that we need to take this seriously, supposedly, I guess, from The Guardian's point of view, because it's producing the Proud Boys. I wonder what the relationship here is, Richard, with violence, the decline of war, and particularly if one wanted to compare the 2020s with the 1920s and the rise of fascism, are there similar things going on?
1: Well, the violence is a really interesting question because, the, of course, the violence, the male violence that gets the attention are some of the tragedies we see around mass shooting in the US, for example. But overall, violent crime has dropped quite significantly in these in these Western countries. So in the US and the UK and other countries, what we've seen is a significant drop in violent crimes, including crimes, uh, sex crimes. And so there's an interesting paradox here, which is that against the expectations of many, mostly conservative writers of the 1970s, the growing dislocation of many men has not led to a rise in crime. Crime has been dropping at the same time as we've seen overall, as we've seen these problems emerging. And I think that's an interesting paradox. Uh, and I think technology actually might have quite a lot to do with that. I think the fact that there are now alternatives for men to turn to might be one of the reasons why we're not seeing some of the downsides or, that we might have otherwise expected from these growing problems of men. So to that extent, we should be grateful to the internet.
0: Well, except they're blowing each other up on in in, in the
1: metaverse rather than in real life well that's significantly better isn't it (laughs) (laughs) i'd take it any day like if you want to put me in you know i'd rather play call of duty than be in ukraine ukraine right now
0: i guess that's true but what about um traditional masculine values which of course historically were bound up in warfare Are they just gone away is that history richard
1: well i would probably want you to be a bit more specific what you mean by those values before i answer the question andrew like what 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 are traditional masculine values i have my own views but i think if you're going to frame the question well, there, i'd love to hear a bit more since, it, it.
0: since this is a book podcast let's throw in homer homeric values uh mm-hmm. odysseus as the quintessentially male male is, mm. is odysseus history he probably was <laughs>
1: Yes. This yes, as a fact. I mean, I do think there's something important here, though, which is we've become, as, a, as, as societies have become more peaceful, you know, largely as a result of some of the trends we've already talked around, around actually the rise of marriage and, and so on, uh, and you know, better societies in many cases, much safer societies. What that means is that those traditional, some of those traditional masculine values, if, certainly if you go back in those times, are obviously less immediately adaptive. So I can say in the book somewhere that it's true that men still on average have a significantly higher potential for aggression. There's, I don't think there's any doubt uh, about that among sensible scientists. but I don't find physical aggression or, or, physical aggression yes. physical yeah, it's a great distinction. yes, absolutely physical uh, physical aggression there's relational aggression tends to be something that is more common among girls and women, which is one reason and uh, John Haidt has done good work on this, why social media, I think is disproportionately bad for girls. But in terms of physical aggression, yeah. Um, but it's just, it's not much use for it at the Brookings Institution. Sure, if I'd been with Odysseus, it would have been probably quite useful. And what it turns out is that it's the potential that's there. And again, you see it playing out tragically now. But in the Ukraine, there's a reason why the Ukrainian government have said, like, you you guys need to stay here. But my, I think it was Margaret Mead that said, as societies become more peaceful, we are going to have to find ways for some of these differences, some of the outlets that um, boys and men on average need, which is where where sports comes in. Back to your previous conversation that you had a little while ago about sports and so on too. And so she said, look, we need to find ways for men to, to be useful and to engage in some of that. And I don't think that should be a controversial point. It's only controversial if you deny any differences at all that are based in biology between men and women. But overall, it seems like it's the potential that's there rather than the reality. And so there's, there's a role for culture here. Uh, and that's why I hate the whole nature-nurture thing, because it's, like, it's not as if because there are natural differences it makes nurture and culture less important. It makes it more important, because that's how we express and adapt and shape our natures for civilized society.
0: Richard, what about politics? I mean, it's, it, it can't be coincidental that we have the rise of so many wannabe male authoritarians from Trump to Putin, to Bolsonaro, to Modi, to Erdogan, and on and on and on. Um, We did a show last week on Brazilian authoritarianism, on Bolsonaro, Mm. Bolsonaro, the ultimate uh, male wannabe authoritarian, a kind of knockdown Mussolini. Uh, Are there connections both in terms of these particular leaders, the nature of our politics today? And the fact that so many more men are voting for these male authoritarians than women.
1: Yes, I think it's important to note that that's not always the case, that there are, there are some populists who do as well among women uh, as among men. And I'd have to be fact-checked on this, but I think that's true in Italy, for example. Yeah, and I think the,
0: the, the election today is particularly interesting yeah. because we might be in the midst now of yeah, what we might correct. think of as a, yeah. a post-masculine right-wing populism. populism.
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, that's sort of that's an interesting model potentially because if particularly if you have a female leader, then it might blunt some of that, um, some of what turns some women off from the sort of you know braggish, blokeish masculinity that we've seen in people for like Trump and to some extent Boris Johnson. But like, I don't think it's a coincidence that Trump won in twenty sixteen with the biggest gender gap in recorded polling history. He lost a few votes among men in 2020, but he picked up votes among black and Hispanic men. And in the US, right now, you we know the gender gap in in polling and attitudes is wide. And among younger men and women, it's widening. And so I do think you saw the South Korean election turned to some extent on a strongly anti-feminist agenda. And so a lot of these populists, and you've mentioned many of them already, do lean into a view of the world, which is kind of against you know, what these feminists have done to us. They've destroyed the family, they're destroying society. And they are finding a receptive audience among a number of men. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why the problems of boys and men can't just be left to fester, because there are some real problems facing boys and men. And skillful populists can exploit those, problem, pro, those problems for, I would say, politically damaging ends and so it's no good for those who are interested in liberal democracy to just say oh this is just misogynist whining there's no nothing to see here the boys we're still in a patriarchy because that doesn't actually help if you're trying to persuade the you know, men and young boys and men who are feeling dislocated and unsure not to move to into the welcoming arms of the populist right
0: there'll be some women watching this richard and i'm sure you've talked to them um who will say, well, welcome to the club. Now you can experience what it's like to be second star citizens." Some, your books, as I said, that a a female columnist and and the Guardian was sympathetic. Um, Anne-Marie Slaughter has been Mm. on the show. I'm sure one of your colleagues in the think tanks of Washington, Mm. D.C. has a nice blurb also about the book. What would you like the response of women, both powerful women like Slaughter and less powerful women be to not just the book, but the whole issue of uh, the crisis of masculinity in the 2020s?
1: Well, I think that the one thing I'd like them to do is to be able to feel able to talk in public about some of the concerns they're having in private. You know, I've been struck by how many women I've spoken to, many of them actually working for a living for women's rights uh, causes, who... But when as soon as as soon as we're talking privately, they're much more worried about their sons. And they're also really worried about men kind of out there in general, partly for some of the political reasons that we've just discussed, but also kind of more, more generally. I think I've been I've been pleasantly surprised by the openness of many of those on the left to say, yes, there there there's an issue here. Partly, yeah, but you said they're only think, talking about it privately. And why privately, are they so publicly? Far? Well, because I think that we've created this zero-sum game. I think we've created a situation where publicly at least People fear that merely acknowledging some of these problems is going to somehow mean letting up on the work that still needs to be done for girls and women. It's a false choice. It's a false binary. But if you frame it in that false zero-sum way, you can understand how that plays out. By the way, the same is true on the other side, too. There aren't very many right-wing politicians talking about the problem that only 2% of the money going out of venture capital goes to female founders. My wife is trying to raise money for a business right now. So that, in the book, it was 3%. She tells me it's 2% now. And I'm reminded of that fact on a almost daily basis. Of course, you don't have enough women in Congress. Of course, you don't have enough women leading uh, companies. But you don't hear the right talking about that stuff very much either. So we've created a situation of a false choice, which means people are afraid. And we have to have a permission space. And that's why I've been quite pleasantly surprised so far that You know what? People can think two thoughts at once. Gabby Hinsliff isn't less of a feminist because she's convinced that we need to be concerned about men men now. She just thinks here are real problems, and if we're interested in solving real problems, then we should just we should be be responsible about that and see it actually as something of a sign of the success of the women's movement to even be having this conversation. We could not have had this conversation 40 years ago, and we're certainly not gonna be having it in Afghanistan anytime soon. But the mere fact that we've seen such an interesting uh, rise in uh, what's happening with women um, allows us, I think, to just take a bit of a step back and say, okay, but are there some issues Even if not most issues, but there are some issues where we should be looking to boys and men. And so start to see that gender inequality can run both ways. But that's only possible because the extraordinary triumphs and work of the women's movement of the last 50 years.
0: Richard, your fixes focus a a lot on education. um, And your analysis Mm -hmm. is, is rooted in education in the fact that girls are so much more successful in the educational system than boys and becoming ever more so. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, still only, whatever it is, 2% of female entrepreneurs are getting venture mm. money and there's only 2 or 3% of CEOs are female. At what point, given the dominance of women and the, in the education system, at what point is this going to change? It must change eventually.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it is changing. Uh, if we if we look at the trends in recent decades, we've seen real progress. So, let's take the Fortune 500 companies in the US. Only last time I looked, there were 44 of them were led by women. Okay, so that's close to the number that you just said. 44 out of out of 500. Um, now, it's what's that? 8%. Um, but in 1996, it was zero. So that's a very significant rise from a very low base and going up. In the UK, we now have, I can say we because I still have my British passport, we have our third female prime minister, such that no one even notices that a few prime ministers, a third of British MPs now are women. You only have to go back 20, 20, 30 years, and it was 5%. And so we are seeing real improvements in these areas. And as the educational outperformance of women by men continues, I think a lot of those trends will continue. I think there's no question that those trend lines now are generally heading in the right direction. Sure, some people would like them to move more quickly, myself included. But the trend lines are going the right way. But in other areas of life, such as what's happening in male performance in education, the trend line is going the other way. And so therefore we do have to look at like which gender inequalities are narrowing and which are widening. And in education, the the gender gaps are widening. And so I think we should be paying significantly more attention to that than we are.
0: I want to get to the education, but let's talk a little bit more politics. I've had Margaret Mm. Atwood on the show. Her Mm. book Handmaid's Tale now seems increasingly more of a realistic than a science fictional piece about the cult of fecundity and a, and a culture which bans abortion. Um, what's the worst case political uh, outcome of reactionary masculinity? It's not Hitler, is it?
1: <laughs> well, I suppose that would be the worst case. If you well, I mean, the
0: realistic but... worst case. I mean, we're we're closer to. I mean, the, the stuff that uh, that Atwood warned us about, mm. uh, given. The American conservative embrace of abortion and a particular kinds of masculinity—those are real dangers, aren't they?
1: They're different dangers, though. So I think that uh, I mean it's striking, like how many of the the leaders of that conservative movement are women, and actually there are much bigger class and geography divides on issues like abortion uh, than there are by. By gender, uh, and so I think it's a complicated picture for sure, especially in the US. But the realistic worst case, I think, is essentially it's a you know the worsening of the political divide around these issues. So I've mentioned the political gender gap just in terms of voting and attitudes, but in some ways, a bigger gap is in attitudes towards gender, and so a really big divide in the US now is between those who think that feminism's gone too far, that we've done too much for women, that men are now being discriminated against on the one side. And then the other side that say there's a new war against women, we are close to, you know, we're, we're days away from Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, um, and, you know, and women's rights have never been more threatened. And so each side doubles down effectively on a very strongly gendered view of, of politics. And what that means is that we'll see a continued drift, everything else equal, of, kind of men to the right and women to the left. And, and in just the same way that I think it's unhealthy for politics to have a white party and a black party, uh, I think it's unhealthy for politics to have a men's party and a women's party. But but I, I fear that the dynamics of the culture war are pushing are, are pushing one side further the other way, and you can you can almost guarantee that whatever one side says, the other side will overreact, which causes an overreaction on the other side in a sort of polarization ratchet. And I'm afraid that that's happening around gender right now for some of the reasons that you've identified, but also just because of the way that each side reacts to the other.
0: So, Richard, where do we begin to address this? You, you had an interesting piece in The Atlantic mm-hmm. on red shirt, the boys, why boys should start at school a year later than, than girls. Do we begin with this in rethinking education and perhaps having different tracks or traditions or schedules for boys and girls in schools?
1: Well, I think it's important to say that that boys are behind girls pretty much every step of the way now. And so from the beginning, but then also through high school. So if you take high school GPA as a good measure of performance, among the top performers, the top 10%, two thirds of them are girls. And among the worst performers, the bottom 10%, two thirds of them are boys. So the gender gap is exactly reversed at the top and the bottom of the GPA distribution. There's a six point gap in high school graduation. Boys are only a little bit more likely to graduate high school on time than students on free school meals. There's a ten percentage point gap in college enrollment. There's a ten percentage point gap in college completion on time within four years, conditional on enrollment, and so on. And they are actually now, you know, that's why there are so, in every OECD country and every OECD country there are more young women with a college degree than young men. This, this overtaking has taken place everywhere. So I think that one of the consequences of the taking the brakes off women in the education system has been to reveal the ways in which the education system is inadvertently structured in ways that favor girls and women. And again, stress inadvertently, this is not some secret plot to do so. But one of the ways it does that is by really rewarding certain skills and outcomes in adolescence, which are really about organization ability to defer gratification, future orientation. I know you've talked quite a lot about this, these the behavioural side of this stuff on this show, Andrew. And so this isn't breaking news to any parent of a 15-year-old that girls mature in terms of those sorts of skills much earlier than boys, but, but we continue to treat them as if they're the same, even though girls' brains have just developed... But is this stuff, stuff
0: really important? I mean, I've got a boy and yeah. a girl, and they fall into those traditional categories. Ultimately, well, having those educational skills aren't always particularly beneficial. I mean, organization and obedience. I mean, the, the whole point of our entrepreneurial economy is to break out of that. So it, it, in yes. some ways, um, uh, yeah. forcing boys to learn how to be more obedient or, or, or abide by the rules is not beneficial for anyone, is it?
1: Well, I think it's a, you can do a few things at once. I mean, I also stress the need for more, more vocational education and learning. And part of that is because boys are more attracted to that and do seem to do better at that. I think that's true. I do think changing the pedagogy such that there's more physical activity, certainly more physical movement is important. And so, you know, this huge overdiagnosis of ADHD in boys now, I think partly is because of this sense of just like, why can't you be more like your sister and sit still for a while? So I do think as I think there's a real danger of pathologizing those traits for sure. That said, It is important to develop those skills and they do matter for your performance in any kind of educational setting. And boys are a disadvantage to girls because they develop later. That's just biological fact. The whole debate about the biological difference between men and women, especially in their brains, is focused on adulthood where there's basically no difference to care about. There are differences, yes, and it's crazy to deny it, but then largely inconsequential. But the difference in the timing of that development and these skills are important. It's great. So why not just start boys in school a year later than girls, chronologically? And that would actually level the playing field somewhat developmentally. Can you imagine the that outrage, low
0: amongst conservatives in America particularly, and perhaps on the left, too? I mean, can you hmm. realistically come up with fixes to this that aren't going to outrange everyone? <laughs>
1: Well, if you're outraging everyone, then you're either doing something very well. That's wrong good. I mean, your right, other book right. is uh,
0: John St- uh, a wonderful biography right. of John Stuart Mill, ah, you who, who defines yes. <laughs> uh, intelligence as outraging everyone. Um, so, but that's not good yeah. in terms of policy, right?
1: No, although I don't. It's interesting that you assume that it will be that that conservatives will. Uh, be the ones who are most against it. That's not my experience so far. I think it's actually those on the left who are concerned that an additional year of childcare that would be caused by starting boys in school a year later will fall disproportionately hard on on poorer families, which is a good criticism of the policy. Isn't so-
0: this, uh, this way of discrimination in, in education, isn't it a really dangerous game, um, uh, Richard? I mean, what happens when you have people arguing, well... What about black boys versus white boys versus Hispanic boys? What about transgendered youth? This is a very tricky area, to put it politely. Yeah,
1: no, I I agree. Uh, And so it's only on the grounds that, you know, if there are these differences that we know about, then it's not crazy to introduce them into education policy. we, We do have to make a decision about when kids are ready to start school. And that differs by state in the US, and it differs by country. So we're making judgments about developmental readiness. And if there are these differences, pretty strong differences between boys and girls in what their development trajectories are going to be like, then it sounds it sounds controversial, it sounds radical, but I can imagine a world where once you've done it and it becomes the norm, it's not necessarily crazy. And let's be clear that the current education system isn't necessarily doing a great job of looking after boys. And some of the boys do end up taking longer to go through the education system especially when you think about race so one of the facts that you know you know you run across facts that you have to sort of double check triple check and then get someone else to check for you before you use it well one of those facts in the book is that one in four black boys have to repeat a grade before the end of high school one in four is not nothing and so and now that compare
0: that, with white boys
1: it's much less for white boys i don't have the number off the top of my head but it's let's I'm sure it's you know, less than half the rate for white boys, so that that's a great example of the intersection of race and gender. But I also worry that if you that if you start to decide like who would benefit most from a delayed start, then you start to stigmatize the ones who are left behind. Now, you might say if you could do all the boys, all the boys will be stigmatized, but I don't think that's true. I think that if that's just the way things are, then people pretty quickly get used to it. That's my that's my hope anyway. But I should also say that as well as vocational training, that I've already mentioned. One of the other things that I really think we need to do is get more men in the front of our classrooms. The teaching profession is becoming more female dominated over time, not less. And there's very good evidence that having male teachers really does help boys uh, in the classroom, especially in the subjects where they're struggling most, like English. And so, you know, there's a danger here. I sound like Groucho Marx. What did he say? Like, here are my principles. If you don't like them, I have others. But to some extent, that is what I'm saying. Here are my policies. If you don't like them, I have others. And so I think there are a range of things we should be considering to help boys um, succeed more in education, including the ones I've just mentioned.
0: It's ironic you talk about male versus female teachers. Um, The reason, of course, why I think there are more women is it's a really badly paid profession. So ironically, given the nature of your argument, if you paid teachers more, there'd be more men. But then that's undermining. the the broader contours of your argument I mean it's an interesting conversation Uh, Simon Cooper who's been on the show uh, headlined his review how to reboot men for the age of gender equality and his conclusion was rather depressing he said after 200,000 years of patriarchy we won't instantly devise a society in which men and women thrive together and then he ends but it's doable, which is the ultimate journalistic throwaway. Like doable, like I don't know, <laughs> conquering the universe. Is it doable, or is this going really to sure. ultimately screw us up?
1: Well, seriously, it, here, here here's a couple of things I say. One is, well, it's it's certainly only doable if we try to do it. It won't do itself, and so I do think taking seriously the challenges that we now face um, as a result of these these transformational changes in the last few years is incredibly important and being intentional. But right now, I don't really see us trying very hard to do it. So let's see if it's doable by by trying to do it. But the other thing also is that I do actually think a lot of the issues that we've raised um, here do have some potential solutions to them, and I was really at pains in the book to focus on solutions. There's this great line from Yasha Monk. I don't think you've had Yasha on your show, have you? Yeah, no. we've had him. We have had everyone on, Richard. You have? Oh my God, it's on, it's amazing actually. But Yasha has this great line where he talks about the chapter eleven problem, which is you write a book saying everything that's yeah. wrong with the world in the first ten, then chapter the first ten chapters, and you have to come up with some solutions in chapter eleven, and they're usually pretty insipid. Well, I don't do that. I have pretty i hope pretty rich uh policy chapters they might even risk being a bit too wonky for some readers but i i set out a whole suite of potential solutions that we should be looking at some of which we've talked about here in education but it, it's same in work same in family life and one of them in family life for example is equal paid leave for mothers and, and fathers and so there is stuff we could do It's a question of, do we have the political will to do it? And that in turn, I think, is do we have cultural permission to even talk about it? And so right now, a lot of those things are not even on the table for the reasons that we talked about a few minutes ago, because they're just seen as third rail in the US or politically untouchable. But they are not going to fix themselves. And Simon's quite right to say that this is going to be a challenge, right? If you take a way of running a society, let's call it a patriarchal one for now, one where women are economically dependent on men. And almost overnight transform that society into one where that is no longer true, which we have largely achieved. I think we should expect a few bumps along the road and we should expect to have to step up and deal with some of the problems that result from some of those cultural transformations without in any way suggesting that those transformations aren't a good thing and shouldn't be completed. But simply to say that even wonderful positive social changes can come with some troubling consequences and it's a cultural responsibility to try and deal with those before they fester and get worse. So I don't, I don't think that it's impossible, but I will say it's impossible if we don't even try.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more. Of boys and men, why uh, the modern male is struggling, why it matters and what to do about it. New book by Richard Reeves. Um, congratulations, Richard, on the new book. Uh, what else are you reading? Um, you talked about Yash- Yasha Monk has a new book out on democracy. He was actually on the show quite recently.
1: Yeah, I'm reading Yasha uh, Shadi Hamid has a new book coming out as well on Islam and political uh, work. I, I was going to say, have you had Shadi on? But, no, I not I, uh, I haven't heard of Shadi. Yeah, Shadi Hamid is a colleague at Brookings. He does great oh, will work. we you like to introduce on- me. Yeah, so I'm reading his his new book. It's terrific, actually. I will, I'll introduce you, but um, he would be he's very, very thoughtful on liberal democracy and the role of religion. He had a great piece in the Atlantic. I can't remember the title, but there's a great line of like, this is what religion without religion looks like and about how much of the sort of religious fervor of Americans is being channeled into politics. Uh, mm. And the sort of the, the religion, the religionization of politics, if you like, is actually now more than the politicization of religion. And so he's super interesting on that. So, uh, reading his work, I, li- I like his work a lot. Um, and obviously just anything that comes, comes my way. Um, uh, I I think there's a nice couple of pieces by Arthur Brooks in the Atlantic. I like to keep up with him. So I read that. And there's a very good review of, uh, do you know Amir Srinivasan? She wrote the book, the right to sex. No, I I mean, I know, I I know her work. Yeah. There's a very long piece in the New York review of books, which I think actually, I think is usefully critical of, um, some of Srinivasan's work and, and sex is an area that I largely avoided in my book (laughs) for, for, for obvious rhetorical reasons. Um, but I do think that there's been a slew of books out now from women Louise Perry, Amiya, Srinivasan. Yeah, Louise Perry was on the show. And then what's uh, Erica Bakayoki and uh, Christine Ember from very different perspectives have yeah, all Christine got books Emily out. Ember
0: was on the show too. Yeah, I sex. mean, but, we've got to end now, Richard, but actually, it'd be yeah. great to have you and Ember and uh, yeah. Perry on all talking talk about, about this sex. Stuff. Yeah, talk let's talk about sex. sex.
1: Yeah, that'll be fun. Than well, thank you for having it me on. And
0: do it, right? <laughs>
1: yes. Right. There's a lot more talking than doing now, but that was great, Andrew. Thank you for having me on.